HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week on Meet and 3, it's all about screens. We're diving into the world of TV, computers, and even VR to figure out how food consumption is shifted by a digital lens. Every course talks about a different topic within the Asian American identity through a very personal lens. And the three courses that are paired with VR, in it you're seeing a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat. Most of us in the world live in urban areas. And so how much is the city already accidentally providing its residents? And how much more could it provide if um, we just made it a priority? Tune in to Meet and 3. HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We're aiming to release a new episode every week, and we'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit. We need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make your gift. Today's theme, you are what you eat and also what your microbiota eats. We eat for lots of reasons, for fuel, to feel good when we're happy, when we're sad. Food is something that we consume every day, and for many people, they don't always feel good when they eat what we call healthy. Should you cut out gluten? Should you eat more antioxidants? It's a confusing landscape, and we need to do some self-exploration and work on supporting not just our bodies and their parts, but in fact, we also need to support the vast microbiome that exists in and on our bodies. Research is continuing at a breakneck pace as we discover how important these tiny organisms are to our health and happiness. My guest today is Lindsay Maitland-Hunt. 
Her new book, Help Yourself, is about her experience with food and how it helped her health and happiness through eating to support her own microbiome. The book includes a lot of referenced research alongside Lindsay's personal experiences. There are delicious recipes in the book as well, along with some ideas and guidelines to help you help yourself. Thank you so much for sitting down and, you know, taking the taking the time to talk. I want to jump right in and start with uh, your new book, Help Yourself, which came out on August 11th. Um, it's yes. all about the gut microbiome um, and sort of what that is, and I think does a great job of kind of uh, looking at the research that's been done so far, even though we're kind of really in the nascent stages of that, and uh, looking at how we can eat to better support the micro, the the, I'm trying to think of how best to describe it. I guess the microbes that live inside of us. Yes, the uh, micro. You could call it the microbiota, which is the community of microbes. They're collectively known as the microbiota. Um, so yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your, I mean, your journey. So you had your, your first book was called healthy ish. Um, and you've done a lot of work in lots of different food media. Um, but at a certain point you found yourself, even though you had grown up in a household where there was a lot of cooking and you were cooking for yourself, um, basically getting sick all the time. Yeah. So everything started, now about seven years ago, where out of the blue, I had been working in test kitchens at that point for many years and was a recipe developer and food writer. And out of the blue, I started having sort of a grab bag of symptoms, migraines, joint pain, um, various other maladies that started escalating in a pretty severe way, adding up to like hives and itching and joint pain and depression, weight gain. And though I had been working in the food industry for a long time and had grown up in this really food-focused household, I never really thought about how what I ate affected how I felt. Mm. And maybe that's so obvious to some people, but it wasn't really obvious to me. I mean, there's this really dominant belief that I try to counteract in the book that calories in you know, versus calories out is going to affect how your body acts. And so often in our culture that really just translates, like, how do you look? What size is your body? Right. And so I had this belief like, okay, yeah, I'm mostly eating, you know, healthy-ish. Like my first book is titled, <laughs> I'm eating, you know, salads, I'm eating whole grains. I know about vegetables and I was developing balanced meals as part of my work first at Real Simple Magazine, then as a freelancer, and when I worked at BuzzFeed as well, and for my book. But I also used food in an unhealthful way, which is to say I often like treated my stress or anxiety by drinking or eating or things like that, and definitely having too much sugar. And I wasn't aware that there was that connection until going from year after year of going to doctors and saying, now I have this symptom. They're having to go to the hospital twice in one week because my body had swelled up so much. I couldn't bend my fingers. I was covered in hives. And I kept asking like, what's, what's going on? Why am I having all these things? And they would just give me pills. And I would say, is there anything else I can do? Like, can I change how I eat? And they would say, no, there's, there's nothing you can really do. Just, just take these pills. There's no connection. Right. Right. And so it wasn't until I had basically a full breakdown and, um, came home to where my parents live in Wyoming and ended up going to a functional medicine doctor who he has an MD as well as trained in integrative medicine. And he was the one who told me that this was a gut issue. 
And the gut is this community of microbes. And the way we can affect them is through changing how we eat. Right. Sure. So what was your what was your path to that? To changing how I eat? Yeah. I mean, so in, you know, in, in the book, I mean, I guess as we start to get into what I think is like the second chapter, you outline like the, the eat good guidelines. Yes. So so basically I went to this <laughs> this doctor and he said, okay, we have this community of microbes. And like I said, I never thought like, oh, what I'm putting in my body, as long as I'm going to cycling class four times a week, it's going to offset. Obviously I could tell that wasn't true. Yeah. Um, I was still exercising, but I wasn't feeling any better. And so he was the one who said, basically cut out these things, cut out dairy, cut out gluten, cut out eggs. And I was like, wow, that's cutting out a lot of delicious things, <laughs> but I'm desperate. So I'm going to try it. And I committed really, really like heartily to this, went back to New York, was doing this and I did not feel any better. Hmm. And then I had an even bigger breakdown because I was like, here I am. I've been doing what this doctor said. I've been like trying to read about this and it's not working. And so I just went and bought every single book that had been published at the time that was about the gut microbiota. I, they were written by scientists and I just set about studying because I figured, okay, this is now I know this is something I can change through food. What taking things out wasn't working. I was also feeling really down, like never having really satiating foods like eggs and dairy, like that's necessary for me in confluence with vegetables and other plant foods. Right. Basically I started doing the research and realized from the scientists who were writing these books that basically these microbes that live in our gut, actually it's all about feeding them what they need to thrive and produce these health promoting chemicals. And what they thrive on is dietary fiber, which comes from plants. Nowhere in the research did I see like, oh, you have to cut out gluten, you have to cut out dairy, you have to cut out eggs. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, some have out. Pardon? I said sure, yeah. I mean, because you know, there's, there's, I guess, so much to do with. I mean, now we're getting into, I think, and it's maybe it's a topic for a much longer, different podcast, but you know, into the way that diets are presented and promoted in this country or in the world about it, you know, being about, oh, I'm going to go gluten free. And this is somehow going to help me if I cut out all of this thing or getting rid of eggs. I mean, these elimination style diets, which I do know in some cases, I mean, I have a friend who's got lots of food allergies and things. And so like when you're trying to figure out that stuff, those things are work and they are important to do. But in terms of fixing health issues, uh, it's, you know, certainly what you found and what seems seems to be true is that you can't really do that because then you're basically taking away a lot of the things that these microbes need. Absolutely. And and that is something I really wanted to get across. And I address in the book is that I think the wellness industrial complex has done so much damage to people feeling like there's just a baseline understanding of what healthful eating is. I'm not reinventing the wheel. Like n nothing in my book is so revolutionary the guidelines that come from the science of the gut microbiota are basically the exact same as a Mediterranean diet, the blue zones diet, like any of these. And when I say diet, I, I really mean like dietary pattern, not right. to say diet isn't weight loss. Um, and, you know, I did discover that I have an allergy to gluten, which is devastating, but I'm very careful not to say in the book, like you have to go gluten-free. If you have an allergy, if you have celiac disease, then of course you need to do what's going to make you feel right. And, I think what I want to encourage, once you know the base of what our gut microbes thrive on, the, the health-promoting gut microbes thrive on, which is a diverse amount of plant 
whole plant foods, which contain dietary fiber among many other benefits. So I try not to go too into the like, just eat a lot of fiber because you could add a fiber powder to your smoothie. What good is that? Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to take it away from where it comes from. Sure. And so I even talk about like trying to help people think differently about what wellness is. I get really upset when people are like, oh, you know, the really important thing about eating tomatoes is the lycopene. No, <laughs> that is what benefited a tomato. And this is something that is a, um, a theory, a book called Nutritionism by this professor from Australia, Georgi Skernis, who I interviewed for the book. And his book is so amazing. I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested, which is that so much of this wellness, which I don't even really like the term wellness, I'd rather say well-being, is about this culture that we have is about promoting the lycopene above the tomato. And my thing is like, you don't really need to know all these complicated words and these science concepts. All you need to know is to eat like a diverse array of whole plant food sources in addition to the other things you like to eat. Right. I mean, yeah, I think of, I mean, when you mentioned lycopene, I feel like that's the, you know, before that there was antioxidants. Yeah. So, which became like this buzzword and people are like, oh, this has X number, you know, so many more times antioxidants. And it's, you know, when I was a kid, we just used to eat fresh blueberries because they were yes, delicious exactly. and they were fresh blueberries, not because we knew that they had more or less antioxidant than something else. Absolutely. And this is the thing that's really complicated about having written a book that is about that takes science into account while also talking about eating is like, and I, I tried to say this in the book, and I hope it gets across for people that like, we only know certain things. So I find it really problematic when people are saying like, oh, well, we know this about, like you said, antioxidants in blueberries. Well, there's so much we actually don't know yet. And so what I was really happy to find when I dug into the research and then sort of jettisoned this like removal approach, although it is important to watch added sugar. That's one thing I will say is yeah. important to think about in removal context. But so much of this is about like, we know the science that we've seen about anti-inflammatory, anti-Alzheimer's eating, like it tracks exactly with what is good for the gut microbiota and by extension, our bodies at a baseline level. There's probably going to be so much that comes out that we, we can't even imagine what that science is going to look like yet. And so for me, this is more just about ratifying what we already know about healthful eating within the context of the gut microbiota. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I really I think the way that the book is presented is great and I love that it starts out, you know, with your personal story and then it explains the microbiome and sort of what it is and how to kind of understand it. Um because and it and also that it's different for everybody. I mean, while there are patterns that we can draw and there are, you know, correlations to it in much the same way that like a sourdough starter made in a different part of the world is still going to make you bread. It's going to have different microorganisms in it. And some oh God, will be I the same I wish and some will be different, but you're still making sourdough out of it. Yes. I love that. I wish I had uh, had you tell me that before <laughs> I published the book. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the thing. This is my biggest takeaway, and, and I said this in the introduction with my personal story, is that the hyper-personal often gets to a universal truth. Mm. And one of the things I recommend is people sort of treat themselves like a study of one. Because at the end of the day, you know, we have this collection of trillions of different microbes in our gut, and each of them have a set of genes. And those genes interact with every single thing we eat, our environment, you know, stress is a huge component, these constantly changing on a day-to-day -day basis, if you get into a practice of 
checking in with how your body feels and paying attention when you're eating. So later you might connect to those things. One person might find out something doesn't sit well with them. And the other person might find that it makes them feel really great. There's, you know, on a base level, we know this thing about a diverse, a, a variety of whole plant food sources, but what those whole food food plant sources are can vary drastically from person to person. Yeah. I mean, I think that that idea I love, I love the idea that everyone should treat their own body as this sort of experimental, you know, sort of format, not to say that you should be doing all kinds of radical things to your body. But, you know, I've experienced it with myself. I had a couple of bouts with gout a couple of years ago, and everybody Mm. gave me this long list of stuff not to eat asparagus and not to eat too many leafy greens and organ meats and on and on and on. And through some personal experimentation, I figured out that for the most part, it it was shrimp and beer that were causing problems for me. And so, so interesting. I haven't had I haven't had a sip of beer in two years, and I haven't had a gout attack, and I stopped eating shrimp, but I can still eat lobster. I can eat crab. I can eat oysters. I can eat other shellfish. I can drink wine or spirit. I mean, those things don't bother it. And for whatever reason, that's what I've discovered about myself. Now, is that scientifically true? Hard to say, but it's what I figured out, and it works for me. Right, and that's that's so empowering. And I think, you know, often I, I encountered a lot of resistance. It's so weird that I've written two books with the word health in the title because, <laughs> to be honest, like I don't really want to eat healthfully. <laughs> like, really, I had to convince myself that this could be delicious, and and I did. And and I do live by my book for the most part. That's not to say that I don't like completely forget about it sometimes, but it's because I like to feel good. But it took me learning how to value myself and to like listen to my emotions and all these things in sort of um, in confluence with discovering what healthful eating means because you can't, it's hard to treat your body well if you don't have a good relationship with yourself. You know what I mean? Sure. And so many people aren't there. And so they might have discomfort if you say, Oh, well I learned this doesn't work for me. Often I think that comes off as a judgment for some people, but to me it's really empowering to hear like you paid attention, you learned you can't have shrimp and beer. Like that's, great. Now you can have all those other things that do taste delicious. Right. And I can avoid the sort of like, I don't know, the, I mean, the pharmaceutical industrial machine. I mean, you know, I had a number of people tell me when I was trying to figure this out. And when I was suffering from this, they said, well, you know, there's medicine you can take for that. And I said, yeah, I know, but I don't want to take a pill or two pills every day for the rest of my life. So that I can continue to eat these things, like it doesn't make any sense to me. And if if we know enough to know that gout is affected by lots of things, but is affected by diet, then I want to figure out what that is so I can make that adjustment rather than taking pills every day. Yes, I completely agree. And and this is something I talk about in the book because I was taking so many pills. And the reality is like, I know from my listening to my body personally, which I'm very careful not to put in the book because I don't think it's relevant to other people, but exactly the way you've learned what works for you. And I've learned what works for me when I go maybe too far away from what I know makes me feel good. Then I'm like taking antacids and I'm taking this and I'm taking that. And that adds a lot of money at the end of the day. And so I think there's also sort of a financial component that was really liberating for me when I stopped having to buy these really expensive over-the-counter medicines. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host. 
presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. So I want to talk about fermented foods. Um, I mean, I wrote a, right. I wrote a book about vinegar. I do lots of fermenting. Um, I very early on in the pandemic, um, like in the middle of March, decided I was going to eat fermented foods with every meal, um, just That's because amazing. I know that they make me feel good. Um, and then, of course, I've now come to find a number of studies about gut health and fermented foods related to lower death rates in countries where mm. they eat a lot more fermented foods. So there's a much there are some studies that have been done in places like South Korea where, you know, kimchi is like the national food and people eat it at almost every meal. The death rates from coronavirus are much lower and there's been some correlation there. I don't know, you know, I don't know that it's been scientifically proven to be the fermented foods, but you know, it uh and they make you feel good, so I like to eat them. So I want to talk about that. I mean, were you was for, were you into fermented foods before? this or did that come about as part of looking into the microbiota and the you know and looking at the these things from a microbiological standpoint so i mean i think that's so cool that you're capable of doing it i just i thought i was going to be able to put fermented recipes in the book and i was like no i need to buy these things i'm just i'm sure. not um I'm not that good at like keeping these types of live things going but uh, <laughs> i was interested in from like a flavor perspective right and from just a purely sort of culinary standpoint, I I didn't think, like I said, like I was so naive about the connection between the health of what I ate and the health of how I felt. But once I started doing the research, it was very quickly clear that because a fermented food that that retains the live active cultures, because you can find fermented products that are then um, sterilized. So there's shelf stable, of course, yep. like gochujang, you can often buy, which is a fermented chili paste for people who don't know. Um, you can often buy that shelf stable. And at that point, those, those aren't live active cultures that would have a health potential health benefit. But yes, one of the interesting things about fermented foods and, and what you said about the study is like, one thing I would love to say is that it's so difficult to isolate one dietary sort of factor and then study it because every single person, like I said, has an individual microbiota. It's like a fingerprint. And then in addition to that, we all live wholly differently from one another. Yep. And so for me, that correlation, it's pretty much as close as one is going to get. And I think I would believe that and kimchi in particular, because so with a fermented food, what you're thinking about is that it has this potential probiotic benefit which means that there are these live act active microbes that may confer a health benefit when consumed because these live active microbes might consume other things that are already in your gut microbiota at the same time, other foods. So um, most 
probiotic pills that you might take are lactobacillus. And those are milk eaters. But you know, when there's something fermented like kimchi, that the microbes that develop in the process of fermentation are particularly tailored to be eating the cabbage, for instance, and one type of kimchi that, that, um, that they're like there to purposely pre-digest and then continue digesting once you eat it, the dietary fiber that's in the food, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And and the way that I always think about fermentation is that you're kind of like a, you know, you're like a microbe farmer. So, you know, you are, you are creating the proper environment for helping these microbes, you know, live their best life, essentially. Um, And so the idea, if you wanted something like lactobacillus, I mean, I just made a batch of sour pickles, you know, that's what's, you know, that's what's what's in there. And so, you know, or in sauerkraut, and you basically, as long as those got, they're really healthy in there, and they're making you the delicious food you want, then you know that you've got a great colony of them. I I actually got my kids the other day, um, because of course, my, you know, six year old and 11 year old are into the idea of like challenges. And so I got them to challenge each other to drink shots of pickle brine. Oh, my gosh, I love it. (laughs) Which was really fun, but also is like, you know, it's really, you know, it's very good for you um, (laughs) to to do that. Absolutely. That's so great. And I think, and, and, you know, I think that one of the things about fermented foods, I think what people are able to add it, what I discovered as part of the research that I did is like for people who feel that that's too intimidating because there's so much in the contemporary understanding in the lay media of gut health that the first thing you hear maybe it's take a probiotic, but the second thing is eat fermented foods. And people sort of think, oh, if I just do this, then everything else is fine. Yeah. And to me, it's like this extra bonus of these microbes that may confer a health benefit once you eat them. And there are so many studies that show in the cultures that eat more fermented foods that they live healthier longer. But to me, it's like you already have, in addition to that, you already have this colony of microbes in your gut. And so when you feed them dietary plant fiber, you already have these microbes that are going to digest that. And then fermented foods is this like awesome bonus on top of that. Right, right, of course, absolutely. Um, so I would love to hear from you about the the research part of the book and the creation of the recipes. Are these recipes that you, uh, you know, did you ask for recipes from people? Did you, were these things you were just making at home? How did you kind of develop what recipes were gonna go into the book? So, I began when I started back when I was speaking earlier about how after I realized that this really strict elimination diet wasn't going to work and I bought the science books about the gut and I started realizing, okay, this is the way that the science is showing I need to eat. I started just living like that and taking pictures of everything I made and taking notes because at that point I'd been a recipe developer for eight years or so. Right. So it was really natural to me to be just documenting this and taking notes. And pretty quickly, I realized like there's no book on the market that is giving delicious recipes that will also answer this question of how do we eat in a way that favors a healthful gut microbiota. And so it was sort of this tandem of as I was doing the research, I was starting to develop recipes that fit this idea. And So, and yes, I developed all the recipes in the book based on as once I sold the book and then I went deeper into the research and started interviewing scientists and starting to read actual papers um, that have been, that are sort of precursors to what is published in the books. I 
came up with this sort of set of guidelines and then went about developing recipes that would hit every part of your day that followed the help yourself way of eating. Nice. Um, and I, I really, I mean, looking, looking through the recipes, they all, you know, they look very delicious. None of them seem to be super complicated, um, which I think is good because I think that if people are, if you're trying to get in touch with yourself and you're trying to, you know, use food as a way, not just to feed yourself and your family or prepare for a dinner party or whatever, if you're trying to kind of understand what's happening on the inside, I think if you're, if the food becomes sort of overly complicated, that's sort of a barrier, I think, for people. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that in general, and mm -hmm. I, this is something I came to understand about myself through writing Healthy-ish and through being a recipe developer for various publications was that I'm just really a recipe developer first and a cook second. I wouldn't even, you know, some people call me a chef and I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> never worked in a restaurant. Like this is, you know, I am fundamentally a lazy cook who wants to get to a meal in as few steps and as few ingredients as possible. And I used to feel sort of embarrassed about that, but then I realized when paired with healthful food, that's actually sort of a novel proposition because you can do really complicated over the top things. And so many people are doing that really well and really deliciously, but it's not really practical or a sustainable way of eating. If you're trying to eat plants on a daily basis in a major way of, you know, of your diet, um, I just fundamentally want a short ingredient list and not too many pots and pans. And I want to get it done as quickly as possible. Yeah. I like that you use a food pyramid. Maybe that's because I'm a child of the eighties and I remember like the original like food pyramids mm -hmm. um, was it like as a, as a graphical representation, did you always like, was that something you immediately were like, Oh, we should make this into a pyramid. Or did you think about other ways to represent how much of each thing people should be going for? Yes, I did. I, I believe I sold the book with the idea of a food pyramid. And I also had an idea because I grew up with the same food pyramid with that, like weird, the sugars at the top are like, looked like stars in the sky yep. or something. I, just, I, I loved that. And then when my plate was introduced, I thought it was really successful and that it talked on a meal to meal basis. But again, I wanted to talk about what actually would make sense in terms of eating in this gut focused way. And in the end, it was too complicated to get that across. And the food pyramid I thought was, it was getting more at what your overall sort of like what you're vectoring towards is the way of eating is this food pyramid that has like gigantic green section at the bottom that's vegetables. And then everything else on top of that adds up to about the same amount. Um, whereas the plate I was worried was a little too specific and confining mm -hmm. in terms of how people thought about eating. Um, but yes, this is, this is always, I mean, I wanted something that people could just look at and understand what this was all about without having to read everything I wrote. Cause I wrote a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. If there's, if there, is there any, I mean, you know, because people want things to be simple and want things to be simplified. Um, I don't always agree that that's a good strategy, but I know that is sort of often how humans think. Is there a single thing that people, like one change that is more important than any others in this that you would say? Like, is the limiting sugar more important or is the eating more vegetables more important? Is there any one thing that you would point people towards? Yes. It's a combo. So it's one sentence. I'll sneak in under the line. It's nice. eat a variety of whole plant foods. Got it. Because the variety is interesting. The American Gut Project found that 
eating over 30 different plants in a week was correlated with good health. And so it's really, you know, it's great to eat a plant-based diet if you're vegan or if you eat plant-based. I say plant-focused in the book, but really it's about getting that variety. So it's not it's not really great if you say, oh, I only eat pinto beans, quinoa, broccoli rabe, tomatoes, and tofu. You know, you want to make sure that you're getting a variety from day to day and week to week over time, and that those are in as whole of a source as possible, meaning in the sort of original form when you go to the store and you see a head of broccoli, that's as, as whole as it gets. Yeah. Obviously, that's a little complicated because I think there's a lot of like moralizing that goes around whole foods, and it's, you know, it's... There's a lot of political stuff that comes into play there, but like if you can afford it, a variety of whole plant food sources. Well, yeah, you say eat you say eat good in the book instead of eat well, and I think it's a very interesting point that you make about how there is like a morality that's sort absolutely. Of, I mean, gets in that gets so in much... there, even though people don't you know probably don't really mean it that way, but it has become that. Yes, well, food has become such a signifier of class, right? Yep. And. I think what I wanted to get across and, you know, I was, I was cut off. I wanted this book to be a hundred more pages and my <laughs> publisher was like, you, you can't have that whole section about politics. But I think what I wanted to get across to people was that like you, so many people, and I can only speak, you know, for people I've known and what I've read, but I think in America, so many people have been made to feel bad about food choices they've made. And the wellness industry, at least as it's been in the past 10 years, there's so much about like, oh, eating clean or eating guilt-free. And that's been tagged to health and healthy eating. And I really don't even love the term healthy. I'd rather say healthful or um, well-being instead of wellness. And so eat good. I mean, I don't even think it's like that perfect way to say it. Mm. But when I hear eat well, I'm just like, screw you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's interesting to hear that um, the, that information about eating you know thirty or more kinds of of plants, and trying to think about you know, I mean, the the way that big agriculture works and in, into grocery in this country, I think might actually in fact make that somewhat challenging, because so we do have only one kind of banana, and you know, there aren't that many different. I mean, there are hundreds of kinds of fruit in the world, but the ones that have been bred to sit on, you know, rail cars and trucks and shelves for a long time, you know, I mean, there's not really that many. Um, and we want them all year round and all these things. So it is very interesting to sort of think I, I kind of after this conversation, I'm going to keep a little notebook and like, see how many different ones I mean, I'm, you know, I have a little garden and I try to go to farmers markets and buy the weirdest stuff I can find just out of own my own perverse curiosity about food. Um, but in like the dead of winter, it'll be very interesting to go to like in, in New England where I am to a grocery store and count how many vegetables are even available. Are there 30? I don't know. Well, that's where fermented food comes into play. Yep. Is of course. that you can have this variety that's still living you know, it's a type of preserving that allows us to access different types of plants throughout the year. And, but I, I, it's totally true. I'm just thinking in my mind, I was envisioning the produce out at the grocery store here. And no, I think it probably is over 30, but it's summer right now. Right. And 
even it's so funny you said perverse curiosity and my first thought was like isn't that funny to think of it as perverse right it, we <laughs> sure we, curiosity about food and plants in particular is is actually such a boon for eating eating good as they say in the book or whatever like th this is what we need is a curiosity about like how could a vegetable taste delicious instead of feel like a chore yeah yeah absolutely yeah totally true and I don't even really get into the whole thing about transiting foods and everything like that, because I think so many of so many people are under such time pressure to even eat They're They're sort of even staying away from say they're at the grocery store where there's only one banana and there's one type of apple and there's, you know, cauliflower and broccoli and whatever, like that include that there's a time factor to cooking those ingredients. And so, so many people I think are going to the packaged food that has, writing on it, you know, marketing directly at you, telling you it's just as healthful as eating the plant. Right. Yeah. And and that, I mean, has become such, with the rise of, you know, the wellness industry, that has become such a huge business. And I really, I appreciate that you kind of, you call out what I would term big kombucha in your fermented foods <laughs> list, because, you know, kombucha was hailed as like such a panacea, but, you know, everything you're going to find in the supermarket with the word kombucha on it has tons of sugar in it. It's so true. I, I, and it's funny because when, and I didn't put this in the book, but when I was in the thick of being really sick and not understanding the connection between how I ate and how I felt, I, it was when kombucha became really popular. And at the time I was working at real simple magazine. And part of my job was reviewing food, like new food products and curating things for the gift guide or for online roundups. Or I did these things called road test where you know, find the best peanut butter or the best tomatoes or whatever, canned tomatoes. Right. And so it was sent kombucha constantly. <laughs> so I was probably drinking at least a bottle a day, which is a significant, you know, I think it's a great treat, yeah. but that amount of added sugar is going to have consequences for your systemic health. It's just the truth of it. And so I, I felt weird because I, you know, I don't want to knock anyone who's like built up a company that, that is giving them their livelihood. But I do think that it has been thought of as sort of like magic bullet solution for health. Absolutely. And and I mean, as you know, and when I talk, I mean, whenever when I do book events, people often ask me when I'm talking about my vinegar book about kombucha. And the way I always describe it, I mean, I really like kombucha. I mean, I like fermenting all kinds of stuff, but you know, kombucha somehow got like the really good marketing and the mysticism and like vinegar is still like a pantry item. But in fact, like the sourness in kombucha is vinegar because it's the yeah, same bacteria absolutely. that's in there that's making acetic acid. You just happen to like have some other stuff in there in kombucha. And, and in fact, depending on how well someone is nurturing their SCOBY, you may in fact, if you're making it at home, just be making vinegar that you are choosing to consume it before all the sugar has been turned into alcohol and turned into vinegar. Like you can choose where on wow. the sweet sour spectrum you want, but you know it's it's very hard because without a you know without a lab to test what's actually in your jars, you might just be making vinegar that you're drinking and then when it's a little bit sweet, which is fine. I mean so it's still it's still probiotic and it's still living you know there's still uh, there's living bacteria in there, but it's certainly possible that that could be what's happening. But yet you know kombucha is like mystical and came from the you know the stars and landed in Siberia or whatever the you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's interesting because i'm thinking as you're speaking you know fermented vinegars that are still 
um, refrigerated and therefore having the live active cultures, they're, they're not as easy to buy as kombucha is. And of course, there's like the drinking vinegar trend. Yep. But it would be so great if people were able to buy readily buy refrigerated live active vinegar so that they could be using that in their food and adding a little boost. You know, I think fermented hot sauce is a great thing to also add, you know, rather if you can find that, yep. then when you're putting it on your scrambled eggs that have, you know, maybe some spinach in there or something, you're, you're adding a boost of microbes to your meal. I will say that, that full, fully fermented vinegar that is completely acidified and has no more sugars left from whatever your base was, whether you started straight from sugar or from alcohol, it in, in itself is shelf stable without pasteurization, but a lot of them do get pasteurized. So it doesn't have to stay in the, it doesn't have to stay in the refrigerator because the pH is so low. Um, and, right. and there are some, but there aren't, there are not as many on the market. And of course, the other thing that happens, you know, certainly I, you know, people always ask me, oh, if I drink a shot of raw apple cider vinegar every morning, that's really good for me. Right. And I say, well, I mean, I drink a lot of vinegar. I consume a lot of vinegar. I put vinegar in seltzer instead of drinking soda. Um, and, it'll, mm. and, and as a side note, I mean, again, to play devil's advocate, like a lot of those drinking vinegars, I feel like are just soda syrups where the, the sourness, the, the, the acid comes from acetic acid instead of soda syrups, which are often like ascorbic acid or citric acid. Um, but yeah. but but to the other point, um, you know, people ask me, you know, isn't that good for me? And I say, well, it is good for you to drink this vinegar. And there's a lot of evidence around that. However, even that live vinegar, when that is fully fermented and it is finished and all of the alcohol has been turned into acetic acid by the acetobacter, when you put that in a glass jar, eventually those bacteria are going to die because they need oxygen to right. live. And so the longer it is on the shelf in glass, the fewer live vinegar cells, the few you know living bacteria, fewer you have in there. So while, yeah, it's good for you, I actually think that probably if what you're after is the sort of probiotic boost versus a lot of what your book, which is about prebiotics, we didn't even get to that. Um, you know, I think you're better off doing something like drinking pickle brine, you know, or eating kimchi, something like that, where it is continuing, where it's still really, really active and alive in there. Yeah, absolutely. And what you said, this question, wasn't that good for me? I've been asked that question a million times, you know, people, the big thing that I want people to take away is like learning how to internalize this, this understanding of eating in a way that, that, both benefits your gut microbiota and makes you feel good. So one doesn't need to be constantly asking like, well, is this good for me? Is this bad for me on a like case by case basis? So we can understand the base level, what the science says, which again is like a variety of whole plant food sources. Then you can sort of orient yourself through every meal throughout your life without feeling worried that one thing is going to be your downfall. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I also I love what you said earlier uh, in our interview about checking in with yourself. Um, I think that that is something I mean, it took me a really long time to learn kind of how to do that. But I think if people Same. can start to think about that, um, you know, I think about it now in the context of certainly since the pandemic, early in the pandemic, I was drinking a lot of alcohol, you know, every night. You know, it was like, oh, God, yeah. the news is horrible and my kids are driving me crazy. And at the end of the day, all I want is a drink and that becomes another drink and another drink and I have a few drinks. And then I would wake up in the morning and I would feel, you know, not hungover, but just not good. And then right. at some point I was like, ah, you know, whatever. I just like we didn't have, there was nothing in the house I wanted to drink. Like I was like, ah, I feel like, a, you know, I feel like having wine. We don't have any. I'm not going to have anything tonight. And I woke up the next morning and I was like, wait a minute. 
I feel really good and I didn't drink anything last night. And so then I started kind of trying to really limit my drinking and sort of do a little test and be like, well, all right, if I have one glass of wine with dinner, but I don't drink anything after like 8 p.m., do I still feel okay in the morning? And it would, you know, like trying to sort of figure that stuff out. And it really, it is just about checking in with yourself. And so some people probably can have four drinks and wake up feeling exactly the same. For me, if I don't have any, then I feel better when I wake up in the morning. Yes, I relate so much to what you're saying. And I've basically done that exact. I did that a couple years ago because, you know, I was doing therapy while I was feeling sick. And she was saying, like, think about how you're drinking. That's affecting how you're feeling. And I was pretty resistant to that, to be honest. And, sure. and I mentioned this earlier. I think there is a lot of resistance to paying attention to how one feels. Yeah. You know, like alcohol is great at distracting you from how you feel. And, and it's fun and it's delicious. And I love wine and I love cocktails and I love, you know, I love food. I, I love all of it. It's, I think the question is, can you eat, find a way that you're feeling good and still loving the way that you're eating and living? Exactly. And this for me was the answer, you know, on yep. hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also it's not every, I mean, like I didn't cut out alcohol completely. But I also tried to identify and, and actually cutting out the beer because of the gout thing helped a lot because I like no longer ever go to a barbecue and just like drink a lot of really crappy beer because I'm standing around with people. So like, right. you know, I mean, the in between. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The in between what you're saying is like finding the nuance is a much harder thing to, than black and white. Yep. You know, finding the gray, listening to yourself is is a way to orient yourself in the world. But it's a much it's a much harder way to live i do think it's more rewarding but it's difficult yeah definitely so um lindsay do we do you have any like events i mean the book came out now about what two weeks ago or so three weeks ago three um, weeks ago yeah you know obviously not doing like a book tour um like you did with healthy ish um what what kind of promotion is happening are there online things happening that people can attend as of now, there is nothing scheduled, though, if something comes up, I would love to do it. I did an amazing event with Now Serving in L.A., which is a great cool. cookbook store. Love that And they place. do amazing events. So for anyone, you know, I'm sure people know about it who listen to your podcast. But no, I mean, I'm you know, loving seeing people write about the book on Instagram. I've gotten a lot of notes from people saying they've cried reading the introduction because they recognize themselves in it. Yeah. But no, I'm not really doing anything because of the pandemic, but you know, I'm always available via Instagram at Lindsay Maitland if people want to reach out and share their story or just connect. Um, but that's about it this time because of COVID. Awesome. And you are in Jackson, Wyoming right now. Is that correct? I am. Cool. How are how are things in Jackson? It's a beautiful place. It's so beautiful. It's, you know, it's probably a little more, quote unquote, normal, whatever that means. You know, it's probably more similar to before the pandemic than a lot of places in the world. Um, and there's so much nature here, which is wonderful. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's strange not to go hug your friends before dinner at a restaurant and share plates and things like that, but it's, it's okay. Otherwise. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking out the time today to sit down and, and talk about your book. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to feast your ears today. You can follow at Lindsay Maitland for more info on Lindsay and her work and pick up a copy of Help Yourself. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Please reach out if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.